I know that a lot of people have been super successful in the industry going straight into frameworks. That's mostly what I did too. I was a backend software engineer. First, I was focusing mostly on like data science pipelines. And then I was thrown into front-end development because my company kept having turnover with front-end developers. It's the only reason I learned front-end stuff. And so I was jumping straight into writing jQuery and React immediately upon learning front-end development. And I think that that's valid as well. It's not the path that I would personally choose if I were to go back in time. It's not how you learn the fundamentals first, but it is valid. And I think different people have different journeys. And just because you went in a slightly different path than somebody else doesn't mean that you don't know that thing. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation, no whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Join the community and Slack with us during the show at jsparty.fm slash community and follow along on Twitter. We're at jspartyfm. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at fastly.com. Hey, hey, let's do this. It is party time, y'all. Hello, hello, everybody. It is Jared, your internet friend. And today we are talking web development for beginners. So whether you're a youngster just looking to start your career or someone more established who's transitioning from another industry or perhaps you're just somebody that other people often ask, how can I get into web development? We hope this episode will help you on that path. I'm in a privileged position today because I'm joined by two experts. One is our very own Allie Spittle. Hey, Allie, how are you? I'm doing good. We got a ton of snow in Denver overnight, so watching the snow come down while recording this. Very nice. How much? So I'm guessing it's like three inches. Very nice. We have not been able to enjoy hardly any snow in Nebraska this year, which we used to get dumped on regularly, so it's kind of been a strange winter. Well, on topic, Allie, you've been an educator for many years up till today. Can you give a little bit of your background just on the teaching side of things? Yeah, for sure. So I would have been an education minor in college if I didn't drop out to become a software engineer. And I did my shadow semester in a local middle school teaching math and I'm actually still a licensed teacher in New York. Hasn't expired yet, which is pretty funny. Nice. Actually, in school, I was a teaching assistant for the computer science department. But then outside of that, I worked at General Assembly for about three years. And at the end, I was their faculty lead for software engineering in New York and was also a distinguished faculty member. So I've taught a lot of people how to code both through that program and then afterwards through like content creation as well. So that's kind of my teaching background. I've seen a lot of people's transition into the industry and all different ages. And mm -hmm. it's really awesome to see those students now. Like I have one former student who's on my team at work and it's just so cool to see that, that progression. That's awesome. has to feel good to have somebody that you helped break in to actually like be on your team with you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we are also joined by a very special guest, Jen Looper, who is a principal education developer advocate lead, which is a mouthful, but you can shorten it to pedal, I noticed. <laughs> she puts the pedal to the metal at Microsoft, you might say, and also the founder of Front End Foxes, which is a, 
a nonprofit created to help women learn front-end technologies. Jen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And you've been doing educational things for many years as well. Do you want to give a little bit of your teaching background? Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting path because it's not so much focused on software engineering, but I thought that since I was 16 and I went to France and I fell in love, I was going to be your, your favorite French teacher. So was, okay. that's my background. I went all the way through and got a PhD in French. And um, oh, wow. through that, we have to um, you know do a lot of teaching. We have to support ourselves by being TAs every day in class at Cal Berkeley. You're teaching those kids. You know, I had I had the 830 section, so I had the crew team. So lots of motivated rowers who <laughs> wanted to... Well, there used to be a language requirement, so you had to. So we had a captive audience. But uh, there you go. I also taught little preschool kids when I was in college. I earned extra money by being a teacher in the preschool. My specialty is the three-year-olds, the, the purple room. Those are my kids. <laughs> and um, right now, I'm um, I joined. Well, I went through a software development industry um, as a career path for 20 years, and then you know became a developer advocate within the last seven years. And through that process, I realized that I'm particularly interested in creating amazing educational experiences for people. So like you mentioned, I founded Frontend Foxes, which was formerly known as View Vixens, and we, we designed a curriculum to help people who identify as women, you know, feel comfortable in the industry, feel welcome. And um, and we we opened a boot camp actually during the pandemic because we realized that running around to conferences and doing workshops wasn't going to happen anymore. So we, we, we relaunched as a boot camp. So we just graduated our third cohort. And are going to be opening a new cohort in the summer. But apart from that, I, I love to teach all different levels. And I'm actually teaching in the computer science program at Boston University Extension School, which is called the Metropolitan College. So I teach CS601, Intro to Web Development, HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Works. Nice. And then we tack on a little view at the end because that's fun. <laughs> ah, Got to make some fun into there. So. Lots of educational resources today. So I've done a little bit of teaching myself or tried to at least. And it was probably like eight or nine years ago, maybe up, up to a decade in terms of seriousness. And I think the challenge is there's some things that have stayed the same, but there's also new challenges today. And I'm curious from you two who have a more modern perspective and have been actively doing these things. When it comes to people getting into web development in 2022, what challenges are are people facing that perhaps they weren't before, or maybe they're just the, the same old challenges that everybody faces. What's, what's the most challenging part about web development today? I'll go ahead and just kind of jump in the deep end here. I think that there's this double-edged sword of availability. And that's a question of everything now is online. Everyone is online. Everyone is doing everything, you know, in giant programs and boot camps and everything else. And it's very hard, I think, for people to kind of focus their efforts and decide on what's going to get them from step A to step B in their career, or even what career path they want to pursue. Ali, I'm sure you have thoughts on this. Yeah, for sure. I think that especially like maybe six years ago, one of the biggest issues was shiny object syndrome with the front end space evolving so quickly. And I think some of that has stayed around too of people saying, hey, like I want to learn front-end development, and then they start learning vanilla JavaScript, and then they see somebody on Twitter saying to learn Vue instead, and then they see somebody say React, and then they know Hello World and eight different frameworks but can't really build anything. And that's something that I think a lot of people have to deal with. I think there's just this inundation of information too. There are so many different resources, so many different paths. Even the decision between a CS degree and a coding boot camp and self-teaching. Mm -hmm. And then once you're inside of one of those paths, which permutation of that do you choose of which coding boot camp or which set of resources for a self-taught developer do you use? And I think all of that is a very, very challenging thing for people getting into the field is that instead of there being a very clear cut path, there really is not. Yeah, definitely. And I was thinking to add on to what you were saying is that there's also a disjunction between what's taught in the standard four year program of, you know, the battery of classes that's taught as opposed to, you know, what you're going to do in the industry eventually or what boot camps are doing because they're a little bit closer to industry a lot of times. So I've seen folks graduating from extremely prestigious four-year universities, and they don't know how to build. It's amazing to me to watch. It's sort of the paradox of choice, because we have now this abundance of choices, but now the actual choice-making becomes what blocks you or what confounds you or frustrates you. 
And I like this as opposed to the alternative before because there used to be a, a dearth of resources. And what I learned in university was not applicable to what I was going to be doing back when I was at university. I went the four-year degree path and I didn't know how to build stuff afterwards well or actually much at all. And maybe that's just me, but probably not. I think it's different strokes for different folks, but maybe you two who have these different backgrounds and have educated and tried and talked to a lot of different people, can you explain maybe as best you can, like what path makes sense for what kind of people or kind of learners or circumstances? I know there's so many different circumstances, but is a four-year degree for a certain subset of humans, whereas a boot camp is for another subset? Or is there a way you can help people make that decision? Boy, that is the 800-pound gorilla, I'll tell you, because people are, especially at this moment in the pandemic, where education has been completely disrupted, the value is really being seriously questioned of how much, mm -hmm. you know, to get into debt for these very expensive programs. And I also went through, you know, the four-year degree, admittedly in a completely different degree, mm -hmm. <laughs> degree path, but people are really starting to question how much they're willing to pay for, you know, these kind of four-year programs. So, I kind of feel if you're absolutely sure as an 18-year-old that you want to be a software engineer, I'm not sure that I can advocate that four-year experience. Ali, what do you think about this? This may be controversial. <laughs> yeah. So the path that I always, always recommend to folks is to start with free resources and make sure that they're actually enjoying programming first and it's something that appeals to them. Because when I was teaching at a coding boot camp, I think a lot of the marketing was like, hey, you take this class and then you become a software engineer. And that's not really how it works. Like you have to do the work and you have to be willing to put in that time and learn the things that you need to within that course. And so you really do have to know that you're going to enjoy doing this. And it doesn't have to be like, this is the love of my life. I'm so passionate about this. Like passion is overrated, but if you hate writing code and you don't understand it at all, it's probably not something that you want to spend the next, like what, 30 years of your life doing. And so right. start with free resources. See if you like those. I think free code camp, you're wearing the t-shirt, <laughs> Jared, <laughs> start somewhere where like that. And see if you like it first. And then from there, you have three different paths. So I think boot camps are kind of the middle ground between being self-taught and a four-year degree or even a two-year degree. There are a lot of programs that are doing like a master's degree for folks who didn't have a CS undergrad. So I think that's another option as well. But I think weighing the options of what is most important to you, is it getting to a job quickly. And in that case, uh, boot camp is probably the way to go because you're probably going to be able to learn the most quickly there. It's going to take longer to self-teach or take a CS degree. But then there's also the opportunity cost too of taking one of those. Like The cost is often prohibitive to people. There are a lot of really great free programs, but also some of them do cost a lot of money. Like I know that there's like this growth of income sharing agreements too, which can often be predatory. And then if you want something really prestigious on your resume, like probably going the CS degree, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, uh, the way that the industry is, like a lot of companies still do gatekeep a little bit. And so for some companies and some roles, depending on what your goals are, doing a CS degree is going to be the way to go. Though have also seen a ton of people be successful self-teaching, but you have to be super, super, super self-motivated in order to do that. You're not going to have an instructor pushing you along or anybody looking over your projects to make sure that you're going in the right direction. You have to do that all yourself. And that can be really difficult for a lot of people. So if you're going that path, I would highly recommend getting as involved in industry events and the community as possible so that you do have somebody to look over your code and say, hey, thumbs up, thumbs down. Like, I think that that's really valuable as well. So I don't know. That's my two cents is that yeah. all of these paths are super, super valid. They're just different. I am seeing a little bit of loosening in that requirement for the CS degree. Thank goodness. So I know at Microsoft, we've loosened that considerably, which is nice to see. I think geographic location is still, um, is still a challenge for a lot of folks, you know, and that's just really unfortunate. So it's interesting to see some boot camps. Well, like Front End Foxes, we had two Africa cohorts and a LATAM cohort. We had so what we try to do is we have a, a local teacher 
to, to staff these. So we try to, you know, give opportunity worldwide. But yeah, the boot camp thing is really interesting. It's been interesting to watch it evolve because these predatory programs have kind of cropped up and they've actually hurt programs like ours because people will, will ask us, you know, so what's the catch? What's the catch? It's free, but what's the catch? <laughs> so, but you have to be a little bit savvy and just kind of shop around and make sure. Landing a mentor is really helpful if you can find an industry mentor to kind of help, you know, bounce ideas off of or give suggestions on, on your career path and maybe help steer you towards the right program for your learning style. I think that is really good advice. Is there any actionable steps towards mentorship? Like finding a mentor often is the hardest part of that whole deal. Actually, even approaching a mentor can be hard as well. But is there like places where mentors go to mentor or how'd you find that if you don't like know somebody personally? Yeah, I actually was cornered, physically cornered in a, a conference. <laughs> has to be well, that's one way not to do it. <laughs> no, it worked. I, I mentored the lady for a year. It was fine. Oh, but, it worked. Okay. That's one way to do it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, all right, all right. But of course that's easy to do, you know, in an in-person conference, you know, you can yeah. you know, talk to people and ask. It takes a lot of courage, but I think just asking nowadays, I'm guessing, well, meetups are opening back up. Boston Vue.js is back in person. So honestly, I think that's still the best option. If you can find a way to meet industry people and then mm -hmm. say, hey, you know, could you spare an hour a month so that I could, you know, take a look at my resume, take a look at my LinkedIn and look at my projects, that sort of thing. But go with a plan and try to place yourself in the right location, I think. Yeah. Allie, any other thoughts on mentorship? Yeah, I would say that... Oftentimes in my experience, having one mentor isn't the way to go. Instead, try to find a panel of people and you don't need to necessarily have this conversation like, be my mentor. Instead, you can get on one of these Discord communities or Slack communities. There are so many of them that are hmm. out there and you can ask them questions and get advice that way. It's much less of a big ask for a lot of people to help you incrementally rather than one person to do it all the time. I know that so many people that like cold DM me on Twitter and ask for mentorship and it just would be completely unsustainable if I were to say yes to, to those folks. My big advice always for people trying to career transition is to think about your previous career and what you liked about that and what you didn't like about that. So if you're already working in the healthcare industry, do you like that industry? Because if so, you're going to have so much institutional knowledge if you become a software engineer in that industry once you transition. And so I think keeping that in mind when you're looking for a mentor is really important too. What are the things that I want from my future career? And who is out there that has those things? And how can I get the best information from them so that they can guide my career in that way? And also, you don't have to have like a year-long mentorship relationship with somebody either. You can just have a one-time coffee chat, and that's a much smaller ask and can be pretty high impact as well. It's true. Yeah. And just, I think putting a little time boxing around it is a smart idea. Speaking from, I'm sure you have the same experience, Holly, you know, how much time that you have to, to spend um, and sort of, and as a mentee, you know, making sure to, to say thank you. That's always nice. <laughs> yes, definitely. And make it a two-directional relationship too. Don't have it be like a parasocial, parasitic type relationship. Yeah. Give back in some way too. And that's like not monetary, but share your learnings, share your advice. You have some valuable contribution as well. The more mutual that a relationship can be, the better. And I think that goes for networking in general. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square app marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square app partner. Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. 
You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And of course, you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com slash square. Again, changelog.com slash square. We covered where to start with regards to pre-code camp, boot camps, colleges, self-taught. And I think that was some good advice from both of you on that front. Hopefully that helps some people out trying to make that decision. But how about content? How about tech? How about the decision-making process? Should I learn Ruby on Rails? Should I learn Node.js? Should I learn React? What about Angular? What about these frameworks? Should I start with the fundamentals? To framework or to fundamental? I think you both have takes on this, of course, Jen, you and the folks at Microsoft have a whole curriculum on getting started. So surely there's some opinions there. But if you were to speak very plainly about the best path to getting started once you've decided, what kind of technologies or fundamentals should people be focusing on first? Yeah, it's always a very interesting topic to think about because there's so many, well, if, what if, you know, there's so many caveats and concerns and different paths that you could take. What we did at Microsoft is we all got together as a team and sort of shared our experiences on, you know, what would be the best curriculum that we could create for someone who wanted to be a web developer. And it really turned into more of a front-end web developer course, which is the web dev for beginners. And we decided that, you know, we weren't going to tackle um, frameworks at all. We weren't going to touch on, you know, even, you know, still a lot of curricula tends to lean on jQuery you know, some of these older texts. And I admit that I learned jQuery before learning the fundamentals of JavaScript. And I've regretted that for 20 something years, you know, because uh, it's, it's just, yeah, as a self-taught person with no clue what I was doing. I'll just ask real quick, what do you regret about that? I think that uh, understanding fundamentals will help you understand why people are creating the frameworks, what problems they're trying to solve. So it'll give you a deeper understanding of what's going on that caused these frameworks to be created. So that's what we did. But the, the innovative thing we decided to do with our curriculum, which is other than the format, which is, you know, we did it on GitHub. We did it for 24 lessons straight through on a 12, you know, kind of with this understanding that a college might pick it up for 12 weeks. We interspersed it with quizzes to warm up the brain and to kind of cool down the brain after each lesson. We're really careful about inclusive language and visuals. So I'm, I'm a visual learner. A lot of us are. So we wanted to have lovely sketch notes kind of interspersed all the way through to make sure that we were taking care of those kind of learners. But in terms of the design of the curriculum, we, you know, we focused on fundamentals first. We have some lessons on, you know, getting started with JavaScript itself. But even before that, we tackled accessibility. So that was kind of an interesting thing. We led with accessibility. And that was the right decision because it gets your mind into this idea that you're, as a web developer, your number one task is to design for everyone, to build for everyone who might access your, your website and your assets. So we started with that and then went to some JavaScript fundamentals. And then we started tackling projects. So um, we went with a project-based approach for the rest of the curriculum. So we have, you can build a little terrarium, you can build a typing game to practice event-driven programming. You can build a, um, let's see, what's the other one? There's a space game that's kind of, gets pretty complicated. It's like Space Invaders. And then by the end, you're building a bank. Not, you know, it's not like, a real bank, but it's like the squirrel's bank for nuts kind of scenario. So yeah, so quickly transition from these fundamentals and accessibility into project-based learning, heavy on the visuals, heavy on the challenges, the quizzes, the knowledge checks. So that's kind of the design we went with. It's not true project-based learning, which is more open-ended because it's very hard to to assess that sort of thing, especially when it's not instructor-led, but um, that's kind of the the way we tackled it. And uh, no on the frameworks for this iteration. No on the frameworks. And so how long is that curriculum? That's 12 weeks, 24 lessons. Okay. So, Allie, on your side, maybe even at what happened at General Assembly, I'm not sure what their style was or what you think about starting with, maybe you want to get into a job yesterday and like the job says, must know React. And so would you maybe start with the React and just learn it so you can get the job? Or would you slow down to the fundamentals? I'm actually torn on the subject. Okay, so my advice always is to look at job descriptions as you're starting to learn. So 
do a regional search in your area. Look at the jobs that are most interesting to you and are most beginner entry level friendly and take notes of the things that you're seeing over and over again. If it's Python or JavaScript or React, and you can kind of make a curriculum for yourself based off of that. And this is super important because if you're living in like, okay, I used to live in Chicago, right? And if you are just looking at general purpose programming resources, you'll probably hear that like jQuery or Ruby on Rails is long dead or whatever. But in the Midwest, it's like lagging quite a while from a, a lot decade, of the yeah. big, big cities, right? <laughs> I used to live in Chicago, which is why I'm using that as the example. And so the tech stack might look different than it would in San Francisco or New York City or something along those lines. So that's always my first piece of advice is to think backwards from that. And also, it's very valid to learn programming, not to get a job, but as an addition to your current job. Like my partner is in finance. He has no interest in being a software engineer, but he has to learn Python for work. And I think that that's something that we'll see more and more in the future as well. So just want to preface that. But if your goal is to get a job, which a lot of people who are learning web development, it is, look at those job recs first. Look at what they're asking for. I also always recommend learning the fundamentals first. So General Assembly is a full-time program and probably much more than full-time as well, where you're doing a normal nine to five in the classroom, but then you're expected to do homework assignments and projects on top of that. So immersive is what they call it. Immersive. Exactly. Immersive or <laughs> a boot camp. It kind of implies a lot of work. <laughs> right. And that's just what you have to do in order to learn in that short amount of time. But starts with two to three weeks of the fundamentals and then three weeks of either a JavaScript framework or a backend framework, depending on the program. And then either a JavaScript framework or another backend framework. And then the last unit's the same. So you've got four units. You're learning four separate things. The first unit, though, is always the fundamentals. And I think that's something that I personally think is important is to know what a loop is first, mm -hmm. to know what is going to uh, know what a class is. And that's going to help you so much when you're learning that framework, because most of these frameworks are just JavaScript under the hood. And so being able to understand what is that framework and what is the underlying thing. That being said, like, I know that a lot of people have been super successful in the industry going straight into frameworks. And that's mostly what I did too. I was a backend software engineer. First, I was focusing mostly on like data science pipelines. And then I was thrown into front end development because my company kept having turnover with front end developers. It's the only reason I learned front end stuff. Right. And so I was jumping straight into writing jQuery and React immediately upon learning front end development. And I think that that's valid as well. It's not the path that I would personally choose if I were to go back in time. It's not how you learn the fundamentals first, but it is valid. And I think bringing that up is important too, that different people have different journeys. And yeah. just because you went in a slightly different path than somebody else doesn't mean that you don't know that thing. And even different starting places because you got thrown into those frameworks, but like you knew what a loop was. You knew what variables were. Like you had, oh, you were yeah. already a programmer. <laughs> I was already a professional software engineer. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you've already heard all that. Sometimes when you're like, okay, these are what variable declaration is and scoping of variables like that. Yeah. Without fundamentals, like variable scope, that's a fundamental concept that most humans on earth don't know about. Yeah, totally. So you come to things at different phases and some people have different backgrounds. Like even somebody who's, in finance has probably written some scripts and stuff and then they want to pick up Python. Well, they've already started to like figure out how to like not repeat themselves and they already like tried to, well, why do I keep typing this? Okay, I've started to, I learned how to do a loop and then you come to Python you're like, okay, I get it, loops. Mm -hmm. But other people are starting completely fresh. I think it's important to know your audience as well. In the extension school, it's a very different type of learner. Most of them are already employed. Yeah. So they're trying to, you know, boost their career by getting that master's degree. But it's hilarious because I have a lot of um, Java developers who are like, look at this crazy front end stuff. You know, what are you doing? Yeah. It's a very different perspective. It's a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun making fun of each other. <laughs> well, it's interesting that Ali brought up that lag in the technology yeah. motion or what do you call it? Like uh, relevance or whatever it is in the Midwest. Because when I was teaching, so we would do the fundamentals, HTML and CSS first. This is like the first week or two. 
and then JavaScript basics. But then we would try to go from there to kind of a full stack and, and allow you to build your own dynamic website just at a basics level. Mm-hmm. And for that, I used Ruby on Rails. This is back 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. And it went well. People learned. And in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I am, we very quickly saturated the Ruby on Rails open positions market, <laughs> right? Like we got people jobs for the first class, right? And then there was just like, well, actually in Omaha, Nebraska, back in 2014, if you're doing full stack or even back in at all, it's Java. Like that's what it is. It's Java. Yeah. So you're teaching a technology that the market really wasn't hadn't caught up to yet. And so there's definitely that mismatch. So I think that's really good advice. Like I think, Ali, what you're saying, if I was to summarize, is like you need to be very goal oriented. Exactly. Like what's your goal is the first thing you got to figure out. And that actually drives everything from there. Yeah. Something I would always tell learners is to have their reason and write it down because learning is much more difficult than people think it is. It's not this like linear trajectory where you start gaining knowledge and just keep (laughs) progressing. Instead, there's lots of peaks and valleys and a lot of ups and downs and really challenging parts and bugs that you aren't going to solve for quite a while. And so having your reason written down is something that's really valuable so that you can keep coming back to that when you are having more difficulty. And I think having the tech stack that you're going to need is like an important piece of that as well, because at the end of the day, if your goal is to get a job and then you're learning things that aren't going to be applicable to that, it's going to be pretty hard to keep yourself motivated. And so if you instead have this like finish line in mind, I I think that's usually more productive. Hello, friends. Jared here to tell you about Changelog++, our membership program for those of you who want to directly support our work. Your Plus Plus membership gets you closer to the metal with extended episodes, makes the ads disappear, and takes our audio to the next level with higher bitrate MP3s. You can join today at changelog.com slash plus plus. So in addition to the actual topic you're trying to learn, whether it's Python and Django, whether it's the fundamentals of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, there's all these other things. Like, how much time do I spend learning my text editor? Should I be a VS Code wizard? What about Git? What about GitHub? When do I learn how to use GitHub? Is that important right away? Can I wait till later? And where do I learn these things? I noticed, Jen, that in your... Microsoft's guide curriculum, there is some GitHub topics in there as I scroll through the table of contents. So that's just another, I mean, it's a big one is Git and collaboration, but there's like thousands of these things. What about the command line? You know, what about, I heard there's this thing called Dino, you know, it's like they rearrange letters of node. Is that important? (laughs) There's all these other things. So when it comes to ancillary tools, that won't necessarily be like the main thing you're building with, but they're going to be like tools along the way how and when do you decide to pick up those or what to focus on there? Yeah, great question. I um, I forgot that we also lead not just with accessibility, but we also have an early lesson on Git and GitHub and how to use it because we're expecting people to be building projects and they need to kind of be up to speed um, quickly with that to kind of get it out of the way and get everything hooked up. And and interestingly, for our boot camp, um, we bumped that right up to the front per feedback. People were saying, you know, we want to get our tooling ready to go so that because our, our boot camp's only six weeks. It's very short, actually. So two lessons for, um, for six weeks. There's only so much you can do. But they wanted to get their tooling straightened around. So we had this kind of, you know, suggested tooling. But again, of course, it depends on your stack. Per feedback, we also added a little lesson on the CLI because we were starting to look at view but in the last lesson. So it's um, that is a tricky question. It depends on the length of your program, your goals that you're trying to accomplish, the stack that you're looking at. For our machine learning curriculum, we decided early on that we're just going to be focusing on you know, Jupyter notebooks, and hopefully you can run them locally so the data sets are going to be small. So um, working with the VS Code team to get all those pieces in, in order, that was a major concern. Just I think for, for short programs like ours, I think that, you know, minimizing the amount of tool chain that people are expected to master and focusing on the concepts, I think is a little easier. And also mm-hmm. whether it's instructor driven or not is another, is another thing to think about. So lots of concerns. 
I know when I taught, it was like, here, we're getting going, we're coding stuff. Now share it with everybody else. And it's like, let's take a day off and talk about Git. And then I said, here are six things you need to memorize. And it doesn't matter how it works. Don't even worry about how it works. Just memorize these commands and type them in and everything will be okay. And it was mostly true for the, at least the short duration because if people got stuck, I could help them through it. But Ali, mm -hmm. what's your experience with specifically with Git and GitHub? Because Git is a very complex or I don't know what you say it. It's a hard thing to wrap your head around. It's a power tool. Let's just call it that. Yeah, I think I saw some tweet at some point that was like, Git is this thing that on a daily basis you have three commands memorized that you use over and over again, but then under the hood you realize that it's this complex graph data structure with immense amount of things that you can do with it. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> Git is super complicated. What we always did was day two we'd have a basic Git and GitHub tutorial. So like add, commit, push. And the very, very fundamentals because they would turn their homework in via GitHub. And I think things like that where you are modeling the real world as much as possible within the classroom is really, really valuable. Of submitting a pull request every time you had to submit your homework so you got in that workflow. I really value that. That being said, Git can get really complex, especially when you're working with multiple people. And so we would have a group project near the end of the program and we'd do another lesson on Git then. So they got to have that knowledge reinforced but weren't super overwhelmed by it right at first. So I, I enjoyed that piece of it, but I also think that there's some value to need-driven learning. And hey, <laughs> I don't know everything about VS Code, but I am now realizing that my life as a developer would be easier if I had like Git stuff in line or something like that in my text editor. And then learning that as you need it instead of pausing to learn about it at the very, very beginning if it's not something that you need yet, especially when you're self-teaching. When you talk about need-based learning, it makes me think about need-based development in the first place. And I think the power of having a real project to be working on, at least even if it's a fake real project, but one that you actually care about. And that seems like something that helps people get over the hump. Because one thing that is true about software development in general and web development also as a subset of software development is that it's actually really hard and we need to just say that because you're going to hit bumps and you're going to hit walls and some people will power through those walls and other people won't. And that's just the way life is. But I think having something real that you want to exist or that hopefully somebody else wants to exist and you want to altruistically do it for them or whatever the circumstances is, having a real project that you want to see into the world helps you get through those moments because you will get stuck you will not know what to do. You will accidentally delete a file and not know the git command to bring it back. Like all this kind of stuff is going to happen. And that kind of stuff can just be a deal breaker unless you're just driven by something that's like extrinsic to that. Do you guys think that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the way we've always focused our teaching at Frontend Fox is the goal of that program is really to make people visualize themselves as a developer, you know, and think about, you know, maybe I could do a thing Maybe I could use that thing to build on another thing. So, yeah. and we've we've had tremendous success with you know, grandmas coming in and learning, or somebody's girlfriend. You know, some famous developer is like, "This is my girlfriend. Teach her something." I'm like, "Okay, honey, sit down." <laughs> you know, and we use it. tooling to make that happen. We use Code Sandbox, so that's a brilliant tool. You don't have to worry about install fest at the beginning of every workshop. Right after an hour and a half, you're gonna have a pet liking app done in view, and it's a beautiful. And here's where I break my rule about teaching fundamentals. <laughs> yeah. You know, with our front end Foxes um, content, it was always view. Now we're, we're changing a little bit how we run the bootcamp, but uh, initially, because we were tightly connected to, to that community, so build a pet liking app with view. Here it is. By the end of it, you'll have a code sandbox link and you can tweet about it, you can share it, people will like it. Well, there's something to be said about an appetizer, right? Something that like shows you this is what's possible in a short amount of time. And then it gets you excited and gets those wheels turning and maybe you're willing then to take the next step. So in that regard, I think it's not like breaking your own principle to say, well, we didn't talk about variable hoisting. Yeah. But it's like in a matter of an hour and a half, you built something that's pretty cool and you don't know exactly how that thing works. Of course, you don't know anywhere near exactly how that thing works, but it does work and it is yours and that's empowering. And usually it will, it'll excite the people that it excites and get them to take that next step. 
Something I see a ton with new learners too is they get caught in the cycle of doing tutorial and tutorial and tutorial without actually building anything. And they feel like they have to understand a topic 100% before they move on. And that's not really productive because the difficult part of programming is not the syntax or even all the conceptual stuff. It's the problem solving and putting all those little puzzle pieces that you're learning together to build something functional. And so I very much agree that you should always have a project going and that you shouldn't go more than one or two tutorials without implementing your knowledge from that. When I was teaching full-time, something that we always did was I do, we do, you all do, you do. And so what I do is I talk about a concept or I show them diagrams. I code something myself. We do is we do a code along. So we all build something together. You all do is doing a group exercise because I think it's really valuable if you're in a classroom to learn from the other people in that classroom. And you can mimic this in Zoom as well. If you're doing something virtually, you can do breakout rooms and assign people there. And then the final part is to do it individually so that everybody can master that concept themselves. And so always be building something and you can really implement this yourself too when you are learning by yourself as a self-taught developer too. So you can... Start with a blog post on a topic and then watch a YouTube video on it, code along with the person. Then you can build a project. And those steps are going to bring you so much further than just doing a tutorial and not digesting the information from it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe hackathons play into this as well. You know, you can follow up on your you know, intermediate learning by joining a hackathon and then working with people to you all do, you know, to all work together and create that thing. Great practice. Yeah, especially if you've been isolated, having other people. I mean, you learn so much just by coding with somebody else, even if they aren't ahead of you in the game. Now, if they are ahead of you, you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, It's like playing a sport with somebody on your team or even against you who's just like way better than you. You just have to learn fast. And so that happens, I think, at hackathons. I've certainly learned a lot myself in that way. But like, yeah, collaboration and working in a group. What about the people that say, I don't have a project. I don't have any ideas. I just want to be a programmer, but... What do I build? Like, I, I don't know, a Facebook for dogs? Like, that wow. sounds lame. No, it's not lame. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. <laughs> well, it could be cool. But even that, like, let's just uh, hypothetically say, okay, I'm going to build Facebook for dogs. Like, I would suggest no, because if you think about what Facebook is, it's like 35 web projects, right? Maybe scope it in a little bit. So you need some help with scoping and having it be something that you can achieve because mm-hmm. on the other end of that motivation for a personal project is just the utter despair that you're in when you realize there's no way I'm ever going to get this thing out there. That, like, that can kill your motivation too. So Allie, how do, what do you tell people when they say, what do I build though? I don't know what to build. I got nothing to build. That's a great question. And it boils down to the individual a lot of the time. And I always think, and I think you hinted at this earlier, building something that you care about or excited about will make it so that you stick with that thing. And so if you're building just a Twitter clone after Twitter clone or to-do list after to-do list, which is a very common one, mm-hmm. it is going to get boring at some point. And so instead, maybe having a big project that you're working towards that you care about for some reason, maybe it's a app for a charity that you care about, or if it's an app for a hobby that you have that you care about, or some application that you have the idea for, but it doesn't exist out there. I think that stuff can keep you much more motivated than building just like another to-do list. It's funny. I just had this conversation at the Boston Vue.js meetup. The gentleman was saying, you know, I don't know what to build. And my first question is, well, what are your hobbies? You know, what do you like to do? Can you turn that into an interesting app? So we talked about his photography uh, interest, but But in terms of motivation, that's an important thing. I actually also pointed him towards Code for America because, you know, maybe you can join Code for America cohort and then work with people to really solve problems. You know, these folks are are, are building, you know, real applications. In Boston, they built an app to show where fire hydrants are because when it snows, nobody can find the fire hydrants. So they geolocated them and, you know, made instructions on how to dig them out. So this kind of stuff, you know, this is useful. Mm -hmm. It sounds a little bit silly, but it's actually quite useful when your house is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. So that leads to another question, which broadens things a little bit. There's also open source. And so when we, if we zone in on the subset of folks who are trying to get hired, right? And whether they're transitioning or brand new, I guess that doesn't matter so much. But like there's different things that they're told or that they think. And one of them is like, okay, I need to work on my GitHub profile. I need to have open source contributions. I need to have 
a cool dot files thing. Like there's like a lot of, I need to have good Twitter threads, you know, whatever these things are. Some are more important than others. <laughs> <laughs> Where does open source fit? Is it something that you should just put off and forget about for a little while? Should you be involved in open source from the start? Because it's an intimidating world, open source. It's a big one. Yeah, there's a lot you can do in open source. I'm hesitating on this question because there's this push for a lot of communities to, you know, go forth and contribute. And it's like the amount of spam, because I, I manage these huge repos now on the Microsoft account. So that's a big prestigious thing to have your contribution accepted into a Microsoft repo. That's nice. But things like Hacktoberfest, fortunately, they allowed us to opt in and opt out of Hacktoberfest. But mm -hmm. it's extremely rough on maintainers when we get, you know, loads and loads of low quality contributions. What I've pointed people towards is um, looking for folks who are looking for translations. So our um, Microsoft student ambassadors are from all over the world, and they've been really helpful in helping us with translations on our curricula. So that's a nice way to contribute or to go and do a tech review of it, you know, and put your name on as a, as a reviewer or to help us write some of those quiz questions, those kind of things. So I think open source contributions are awesome, but you kind of need to look for where your help is. I wouldn't say needed, but where people are looking for help, honestly. So my thought is that when you are a professional software engineer, you are reading code so much more than you are writing code. And you're very infrequently working on a greenfield project. A greenfield project is a project that you're starting from absolute scratch on. You get to run like NPX create react app or whatever. You're rarely, rarely doing that as a professional software engineer. And when you're learning, it can be really difficult to have projects to look at. And so even if you're not going to contribute to open source, I think testing yourself to understand an open source repository and be able to navigate the code within there and make changes to it is a super valuable skill to have because in the job, you're going to be much more working with other people's code than starting from absolute scratch. And so I think it's a really valuable skill from that angle. When I was working at a coding bootcamp, and maybe this is an idea for instructors or learners to do this themselves, I would do um, like a musical chairs app project where everybody would have like four hours to work on a project and then it would rotate. So that project would be given to somebody else and then they'd have to continue it on. Oh, no. And then we'd trade it off to somebody <laughs> else again. That makes it so that you have to actually document the project and integrate yourself onto somebody else's code. Because if you're just reading your own code and adding to it over and over again, that gets you so far, but you're not going to be doing that in the real world, most likely. Wow. You can also look for the good first issue tags. <laughs> yeah, that's another good one. Very cool. Well, this is coming near the end. Any final thoughts? And others, we could probably talk about this subject on and on, just as it, people can learn web development on and on. Of course, we'll link up the Web Dev for Beginners course that is put out by Microsoft totally free, right, Jen? There's no catch. You don't have to. Yeah, no catch at all. <laughs> you don't have to have an Azure account or something. Like it's just, it's just out there. I take unmarked fifties, not just. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all MIT licensed, and uh, that, this is interesting because folks are taking it and um, spinning it into their learning management management systems and and teaching it. Um, we also have machine learning for beginners, data science for beginners. AI for Beginners is coming soon. Nice. And then the IoT for Beginners is also um, available in all. That one is really, really detailed. If you love IoT, definitely go to IoT for Beginners. It's super, super cool. The theme is farm to table. So you start with you know, farm to table. soil moisture and air quality, and you get all the way to cooking. It's really, really fun. Very cool. I'll also take a chance to give another shout out to our friends at Freecode Camp who have, I think, done a service to the world by putting out tons of awesome curriculum for free, as well as... If somebody needs some motivation and already likes video games, they now have a role-playing game in which you can learn development by playing an RPG, which sounds super cool and motivating if you're already motivated to play video games. So check out Free Code Camp, of course. There's lots of other resources out there, but those are two good starting places. And like Ali said, I couldn't agree more with this. Like, try that stuff first, right? Low cost, zero cost. Find out if it's something that interests you because I think everybody should try programming and I think everybody should understand how computers work to a certain degree and the internet works. But I do not think software developer is a career for every single person. It just may not excite you. I know we like to say everyone should be a developer. Well, everyone should try development, I think, <laughs> and find out if it's for you. But might as well do that for free if you can. And then 
pick your path from there. Allie, any final thoughts from you before we call the show? Yeah, I would so agree with that, that at this point in history, even if you're not, have no desire to become a full-time software engineer, having programming as a skill, an additional thing on your resume or an additional thing that you have in your tool set is so valuable. That's how I became a software engineer is because I automated my old job when I was not coding as a job. I was doing like data science-y like manual stuff. Mm-hmm. And so having that skill set can help you so much, even if it's not something that you're interested in doing full time. We've had a few people write into us over the years who are not programmers and still listen to our shows and say, hey, I'm a lawyer and I automate all these lawyery tasks because I learned how to write some shell scripts and I learned a little bit of Perl and now he, that now I'm like a super lawyer because I can get my job done so much faster than everybody else <laughs> because I know how to automate my machine. We have a friend who's an actuary and has contributed to the changelog.com transcripts repo because he learned a program and he's a better actuaryist, actuary actuary because of that. Yeah. And so like any tangential related profession, which, hey, let's face it, now they're all tangentially related to software. You can have superpowers in that line of work by learning these things, even at a surface level. And learning these software packages will kind of enhance your own career path in interesting ways that you're probably not thinking of. Both my daughters, neither of my daughters are developers, but one went through a game development boot camp and now she's working at Lucid Motors with their VR headsets that allow you to have that driving experience in their showrooms. Nice. My other daughter's in finance and she taught me stuff that you can do in Excel that I had no idea. So <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> Well, Excel is the most used programming language on earth, so it's got that going for it. Anybody who knows how to use Excel basically is a developer at this point, at that deep level. It's a crazy tool. (laughs) Awesome. Well, listener, thanks for listening. All the links to all the things are in your show notes, so definitely check those and check out Web Dev for Beginners. Jen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for putting this out there for free. I guess thank Microsoft for allowing you to work on this and all the people who are involved. These really do look like great resources for people. So we, we really appreciate this as a contribution to the community. Thanks so much. It's my great, great pleasure. It's what I love to do. Thanks for watching and starring and listening. <laughs> there you go. Well, on behalf of Ali Spittle, I've been Jared Santo. This has been JS Party, and we'll talk to you all next time. What do you think is the best route for folks getting started with web dev? Let us know in the comments. Yes, you can comment on this and every episode of JS Party on changelog.com. Just pop open your show notes, click the discuss on changelog news link and let your voice be heard. And if this is your first listen, now is the time to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. If you're one of those JS Party animals that listens every week, you can help the pod thrive by inviting your friends into the fold. Tell them they'll learn something. Tell them they'll laugh a lot. I don't know. Just tell them to give us a listen and they can thank you later. Speaking of thanks, one more mention of our longtime partners at Fastly. They've had our back for so many years. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beats farm fresh and glitched out. Last but not least, thank you for listening. Without you, we're just talking to the ether. And who wants to do that? That's not fun. That's all for now. We'll talk to you again next week. Changelog++. It's better.